Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hi, how's it going? Thanks for tuning in again to the podcast. Well, it's Halloween. If you're listening in real time, happy Halloween. One of my favorite times. I'm definitely watching scary movies all this week. I watched Midsummer, which was definitely a trip. Um, quite the quite the film. I really loved uh, Hereditary as well by Ari Aster. This is his next movie, which is probably like he must have had a conversation with someone where they said, listen, we liked Hereditary. Can you make something less accessible to people than Hereditary? Because this movie is out there. But I, I so dug it. The shots, all that stuff, amazing. Uh, I, I did make a joke on social media saying that I was going to be playing this cool indie Swedish music festival next year and shared the cover image of Midsummer, which I thought was a very funny joke for those people who would get it. I did get a few people congratulating me. They didn't use winky faces. I think they think I'm playing this festival, and I really do hope they watch the film and think, wow, this is going to be quite the festival for Ian if he is playing it. Maybe we should say goodbye to Ian because this will probably be the last thing he ever does. It was a joke, people. I didn't put a winky face in there, but it was a joke. Anyway, the live episode of If and When with Mary Walsh at the Rooms that happened a couple of weeks ago was a big success. Mary was super funny and engaging. The audience was great, had some great questions after. I want to say a special thanks to The Rooms, also to my friend Heather Elliott for helping to set it up, and my friend Scott Hammond who came and set up all the sound for us. It sounds really good. I've listened to a little of it um, uh, as I go about the basic editing that I do, and it's going to be really cool. We're going to release that as the season finale episode of If and When, which is going to come at the end of December. So I started this podcast in April. Since then, it has grown and evolved with me with some really great conversations and and guests. And we've done this live episode now. And I'm happy to say there's going to be a few more recorded live episodes at the College of the North Atlantic. I'm doing a partnership with them with a few discussions. And um, I just can't wait for If and When 2.0 which is going to be sometime probably in the late winter, early spring, once we take this hiatus. Like I said, we're going to go to the end of December 2019 and then take a little break while I while I refill the bank, essentially, of some interesting conversations. So thanks for tuning in so far. Of course, more on that as we get close to the end of the year. In the meantime, still another couple of months of episodes coming out. Today's guest is Brian O'Connell, who is someone that I've known for years because I've done radio stuff with VOCM, where Brian has worked for for decades now. And um, I know his daughter, Lacey O'Connell, really well. She's one of my best friends. So uh, Brian was just one of those people that I already knew he had interesting stories um, and and interesting insights into the world of radio and has has seen so much happen uh, in Newfoundland and elsewhere through that lens. So I thought he would be a really great guest. So we're going to listen to part one of, of our conversation right now. Uh, but first, I should mention, of course, that in terms of what's going on with me, I have 
A Christmas tour coming up with Nancy Hines. The Ian and Nancy Christmas starts in late November. We take off for Ontario, do a week up there, half a week in New Brunswick. Then we're back home to Newfoundland for shows starting in Newfoundland on December 12th at St. Mark's Church. You can get tickets now on Eventbrite through the Facebook event, through my website, ianfoster.ca. Look them up. Would love to have you at this show. It's our second year doing this tour. And we're also going all across the island, so you can see all the dates on the website. As well, David Chafe, who is an artist who I recorded a classical piano album for this fall, is doing his release as well in early November. Unfortunately, I don't have the firm date yet, so I'm hesitant to say it here in a, in a space where it will be, will be documented and listened to later. Um, but I, I guess probably mid-November is, is what to look for there. So, so look that up on my social media. It'll be announced real soon. I'm going to be emceeing that event, and I would, would really like you to, to hear this record. I might even do a little special episode for the podcast about recording this album because it was uh, something a little bit different for me, and I was excited about that. Okay, let's get to our guest. Part one of my conversation with Brian O'Connell. Hi, Brian. Hi. Thanks nice. for being here. Ian, thanks, thanks for inviting me. I was kind of surprised when you asked. Oh, you my know? God. Why would you be surprised? Well, you know, uh, this uh, old guy who's been hanging around radio for 43 years. You know, I got it a sounds few, like a great reason to me to talk to you. Got a few stories, but, uh, you know. Well, hopefully. We'll I was looking it. down through your podcast list. You got some pretty good company there. So uh, There's some cool people. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. watching Sandy Morris and the like. And, yeah. Uh, well, uh, you had, uh, and, uh, my memory is uh, is fleeting. So. <laughs> That's fine. But That's I, fine. I, I, I looked down through the list of names and I went, oh, okay. So Totally, totally. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you here. Thanks. So let's let's start at the beginning. So where were you born? I was born in Cornerbrook in 1957. Um, my father, uh, when I turned 40, actually recorded a short audio piece. Well, actually short. It was about 15 minutes that detailed my birth, the uh, economic conditions of the day, the weather, and all of that. So I have a pretty good idea. I was born at Western Memorial Hospital, okay. and uh, my mother was uh, not one uh, to be rushed into going to the hospital, and my father was a nervous wreck. And uh, my mother decided that she was going to wash the floors. This is a woman who's nine months pregnant. And uh, the doctor had told her in the afternoon to be very careful going home because the slightest bump could send her into labor. She washed the floors and then cooked pork chops. And my <laughs> father was uh, mildly hysterical, but got, got me to the, uh, when, when she went into labor, got us up over Hospital Hill, if you know Cornerbrook, yeah. where the Western Memorial was at the time. Yeah. And... Um, I was born, Dad, back in the day they had elevator operators, so Dad said he made a fool of himself screaming for an elevator operator, and uh, she was in labor moments. Dad went out to the drugstore to buy cigars and went home, phone rang, it was the doctor saying, you have a son. Oh, wow. He and his friend drove back to the hospital and could not get up over Hospital Hill because there had been a light little bit of snow, and they didn't have uh, winter tires on. It was November, you know? Right. And um, he said, uh, had uh, it been an hour later, he said, you would have been born in the back of the car with your mother. And uh, that would have been alone because he wouldn't have been there. <laughs> Do you know, my parents' story of my birth was that they were headed to the hospital and they're so practical that my mom was like, I could be in labor a long time. I want to make sure I get something to eat because hospital food is bad. <laughs> so they stopped for dinner on the way and they were like, we actually mentioned casually we were on the way to the hospital to 
have a kid, and they were like, best and quickest service we ever got. Yeah, there you go. That's the excuse, right? <laughs> that's what you need to do. You want to fast, prompt service. So. That's right. That's right. Anyway, yeah, so I was born in Cornerbrook in 1957, November. Okay. Yeah. Did you grow up in Cornerbrook as well? Uh, I till uh, grew up about grade uh, one, grade, yeah, grade one. Uh, my dad worked at CBYT in Cornerbrook. Dad uh, had a background in uh, radio, Kevin O'Connell, and uh, he worked for the Broadcasting Corporation of Newfoundland, and then when Confederation happened, it was taken over by the uh, public broadcaster, CBC. Right. And he went to work for uh, CBC Radio, and he used to do, uh, as an announcer, a number of programs. One of them was called uh, Woodland Echoes, and there's a funny story associated to that because uh, Woodland Echoes was a show for the men who were in the camps, and they would write letters uh, to the radio station just to send greetings, birthday greetings, um, various things, I'm coming home, that sort of thing. It was the only way to get uh, messages back and forth to family, so people would, would listen to that program. You may remember The Barrel Man and all those shows. Well, sure. It was the same idea on the West Coast, except uh, it was Woodland Echoes, which was very CBC. You know, was like, <laughs> it is oh, very CBC. This is Woodland Echoes. <laughs> and Dad said the uh, funniest part about that, because a lot of people weren't getting it, the mail would come addressed to Wooden Nichols. So anyway, yeah, so he worked at uh, CBC and then the CBYT when they opened it up. Um, that was the whole uh, thing when CBC came into Newfoundland. Uh, that must have been an interesting time to work in radio. He would have seen well, the transition yeah, between the Confederation. He did. From the, from the Broadcasting Corporation Newfoundland to CBC. And then all of a sudden, CBC nationally was given this uh, task to, uh, you know, spread throughout Newfoundland, uh, the public broadcaster, you know, which was, first of all, uh, you know, the terrain, secondly, the cost, but but they did. Uh, in St. John, CJON was the uh, rebroadcaster for CBC programming. Right. And if you ever wonder why Jeff Sterling wasn't a fan of CBC, part of that reason was that CBC eventually took that right away from him because they all opened their own their own TV station. Mm. They did have radio, but they opened their own TV station. They always had radio in St. Mm -hmm. John's. It was at the old Hotel Newfoundland initially before they made their move. Right. Um, there must have been some rub in general about that. I mean, that's oh, a giant transition across the whole province. Well, it was, but but they, they needed to start somewhere, so they started in Cornerbrook, and they built a state-of-the-art studio. And if you ever go up over, we call it Hospital Hill. I'm not sure of the name of it now in Cornerbrook. Yeah. It was always Hospital Hill to me. You'll see, I think Rogers may own it now, but the old CBC studio. And all CBC studios have this distinct smell, this uh, very clean technical smell, you know, if you yeah. notice that. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, they they came into Cornerbrook, and as my father related the story to me, uh, they wanted to bring TV to Newfoundland. They already had radio, but they needed to bring TV in, and they needed to train people. So they brought in this massive transmitter, dismantled it, brought it up to the top of the hill, put it together, and uh, of course CBC TV, or CBYT in Cornerbrook, went on the air. It was live programming. There was no tape, none of that. It was all done live, and I think it may have gotten into about 600 homes back in the day. However, what it was was a training ground. So then at some point, all these people who've been trained in it were told, you know, here's an opportunity, you can go to St. John's. And uh, the first CBC studio in St. John's was Water Street West, the old Michelle's Bakery. I think there's a, a supply store there now. Right. But that's where CBC was in St. John's. And we moved in in 1963. And I remember as children of people who worked at CBC, when they did a Christmas special, you were automatically part of the show. They needed kids. We're using your kids, right? Wow. So, well, it was great. Yeah, it was great. It was great times. I hung around CBC. And, of course, 65, 66, maybe 67, they moved up to uh, – 
the parkway. And uh, I know that building really well because I, I grew up there as a young fellow, right? Right. And, so, I mean, obvious follow-up question, I guess, is was radio always going to be the thing for you? Uh, I don't know. It wasn't something that I started out that I wanted to do. I actually, I, I think I, I was born too early. I, I would have loved to have been a desktop designer, you know? Mm. Um, I had a real uh, neck uh, for drawing and everything. And, and uh, I, I thought about draft being a drafts person and all that. And, and I really had an interest in that. And uh, after high school, uh, my sister was living in Edmonton, and uh, she um, invited me to come out. You know, it was fall, and I, I'd not really traveled a whole lot. You know, I'd been around with, with some, some youth groups I'd, I'd been with out to BC and that. But I wound up going to Edmonton, and uh, one day she said, you know, there's a school here, and uh, it's a radio television, the Columbia Institute of uh, Broadcast Technologies, I think. Mm. Anyway, uh, she said, you should, you should go down and investigate. And I thought, well, I don't really have an interest in that. Well, she said, why don't you just go down and talk to them, right? So she kind of, you know, pushed me along, you know, and uh, I did. I went down and they said, oh, so you got to write an entrance exam. I went, okay, I didn't know that. So I wrote this entrance exam and the guy said, well, you passed and uh, we'll accept you into the course, you know, and you have to pay so much to do this, this thing. And it was in a lovely office building in downtown Edmonton. They had... Uh, radio studios. And back in the day, we, we weren't doing it here because we didn't have cable. This is 1976, early 77. You were broadcasting on cable in right. Edmonton, which is- How a, old were you then? Sorry. I was, was, oh God, what was I, 19, okay. 20 years All old. All right. So know? really formative age. Yeah. yeah. And um, there was a guy named Tom Steele, who was my uh, oh, yeah? instructor, one of my instructors. I was the, That name always- the steel name has always stayed with me, <laughs> one form or another. Yeah. But yeah, so this guy, and, and uh, I was there. Uh, anyway, I, I, I had to, uh, I, I decided to do it. And, and I started going to school there. And I was, uh, in, the, in, in my off hours, I had a part-time job with a company called Sun Color Press. And I was doing layout for newspapers because I had done some of that at the old Daily News mm -hmm. before I went out to Edmonton as a, as a, as a summer job. Anyway, I wound up uh, working there and or going to school there. And then one day, uh, Tom Steele called me and uh, said, uh, we have an opportunity for a um, work term for you at CKSA in Lloydminster, Alberta. Well, Lloydminster. So it's Border City. Part of the city is in Alberta, parts in Saskatchewan. CKSA, CITL TV2. Okay. And um, he said, you need a, a TV audition because it's a, it's a television position. And I had done very little TV except what I'd done at school. And I needed an audition tape, which was, you know, pretty hard to come by. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I called dad. Uh, he was working at CBC in St. John's. And he called a friend who was a producer at CBC Edmonton. And, and back in the day, they had this regional exchange. So programs that were produced, CBC was very big in local programming, not like now, but back in the day, everybody, they produced so many shows here all around the circle, up at hours, all those shows. And those shows would be traded off nationally. So Alberta would send their shows to Newfoundland. Prince Edward Island would send their shows to uh, Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan would send theirs to PEI. So dad knew some, some people, uh, and he knew this guy who was actually doing a show at that time. And he said, I, my son needs to get a, a TV audition done. Can you help out? Right. And he said, yeah, sure. Send him over. He said, I'll take care of it. So I went out and got a nice jacket and 
dressed myself up really nice and yeah. made sure my hair was cut nice because I was always always had short hair. Yeah. And I showed up at CBC Edmonton, which is like a pretty big spot, right? And uh, I go in and I ask for this gentleman and they bring me into this studio, which is alive. I mean, there's musicians, there's people running around, there's cameras everywhere. And this guy says, okay, we're going to do, uh, Brian, we're going to do about uh, five minutes. Brian, here's a newscast. Uh, just stand here, look at the camera, and um, you know I'll get, count you in, and you can go ahead. I read through it, and I did the audition, and uh, they gave me this uh, massive tape back in the day <clears throat> to bring with me down to uh, CKSA in Lloydminster. Right. So with that under my arm, I got on the Greyhound, and I go down to Lloydminster, and it's like not Lloydminster of today. This is like still pretty much farm country. You right. Know? Oil was was way off. You know, mm -hmm. if if anything, it was just in the infancy. Mm -hmm. So I saw, show up and I see a guy named Wes Saunders. He's a news director, and uh, he uh, says, "Hi, how are you? Good to see you." Blah 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 blah. Come in for an interview, and I uh, give him my tape, and he goes. Where'd you get this? I said, oh, I had it done at CBC Edmonton. Now, this guy's and, and, and CKSA CITL was a fairly large complex serving the Battlefords in that area. But he was more interested in how I got that audition <laughs> than anything the tape else. Itself, so yeah. I, I, I explained it. I said, okay, I'll go have a look at it. So he goes have a look at it. He comes back and says, come into the newsroom, sits down. He gives me a whole bunch of stuff. He said, can you type? And I said, oh, yeah, I can type. And I, I learned to type in grade uh, 11. School teacher Peter Gary, I always tell Peter, he's the reason I got my first job in radio and television. So he gives me this script and he says, you need to type a story. You don't have to look at the keys. I'm going to stand here and watch you. No pressure. Right. So I get halfway through the story and he hauls it on the typewriter. He says, you got the job. I said, well, what, what, you know, what is the job? He said, you're going to do TV weather and late night news on CKSA and CITL. And I remember my... My first night on, I was on uh, right after Harvey, you know, right after Peter Kent, mm -hmm. uh, when he was uh, an anchor for for CBC, and then uh, on CITL, I was it was the CTB affiliate. I was on after Harvey Kirk. So on one end of the studio, you had the CBC board, and the other end, you had the CTV board. Oh wow! And, and so I, this is television uh, weatherman. Television and, weatherman. Yeah. 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 And I okay. do the weather in the, in the. So once I got going, they put me into the weather in the evening in the in their major newscast. Right. right. Back in the day when there was no in Lloydminster, no film. It was all slides. You went out and took pictures of things and you had to line up the slides so when you read the news the slides would come up behind you so wow. god am i old <laughs> <laughs> but do you yeah. remember that sensation of like well obviously i'm sure it was it was nerve-wracking a little bit your first day on tv terrified yeah terrified uh and i i knew that uh, you know i had to do a good job and i always remember one thing my father said to me if you're nervous, that's a good thing because it means you'll do a good job. Right. And I uh, and I was, but I was always nervous of uh, of uh, you know before I went did anything like that. I was always a little bit nervous. Even to this day, I'm still a little bit edgy when I had to do something. You know? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting topic. I mean, yeah. a lot of the people who've been on this podcast talk about various versions of that and how they hopefully utilize it for good. Right. That's yeah. that stage fright yeah. and and yeah. what that means. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and, and, you know, the really interesting thing about all of this is I don't like the sound of my own voice. What? No. Never did. You've, you've gotten used to cringe. it. Cringe. I used no, to cringe really? when I'd hear myself. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, you know? Yeah, but then again, I, you know, I came around radio, so I, I wound up working in Lloyd Minster. I wound up coming back to Newfoundland, and I left again. I, and I worked with some, uh, you know, wonderful broadcasters. In uh, Prince Edward Island, there was a guy named John Owen, and... Uh, 
John had the voice of God. But uh, if John had the voice of God, then Loman Macaulay had the voice of the voice of God. <laughs> these guys were just these wonderful baritones and so rich and so pronounced and so friendly and natural. And right. I was... I wanted to be that guy. How do you how do you become that person, right? Yeah. And I'd always ask them for some assistance. You know, back in the day, we used to do ear checks. You know, and it would only uh, scalp uh, when the mic came on. What what you said, and then you know when the music started, the mic went off. He came off, right? Yeah. And I always ask these guys for for assistance. And then in Newfoundland, Dave Monder was one of my all time heroes. Dave was just a, a rich voice and a guy who was unflappable. Right. Best piece of advice Dave Monder ever gave me was uh, he said. Uh, the best ad lib is the one in which you don't rattle the paper. <laughs> and, you know, from Dave, I learned the importance of show preparation. I learned the importance of, uh, you know, turning over stones and, and finding things out. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, people like that really had a, um, an incredible influence on me. Uh, guys like Peter Miller at CBC, just uh, natural, uh, genuine, kind, you know, mm -hmm. um, they went for the story, you know, it was, it was always a good thing. Right. Um, Dave Motter was extremely funny and incredible, um, production abilities back in the day when you had to cut tape and I was the worst person at cutting tape. I, you know, it's a razor blade and you know, the tape, oh, block, yeah. the tape yeah. in and you had, Oh geez. And you cut it. I say it all the time when I'm making a record for someone and they're <sighs> like, man, I just wish we had like, you know, like analog tape. No, and I'm you like, don't. And then I'm like making edits and yeah. I just go like Can seven. Can you imagine? And I say like seven minutes, seven <laughs> minutes. They're like, what are you saying seven minutes for? I'm like, cause that's probably how long it would take to make each of these edits. Yeah. And I made it in one second. Yeah. Just incredible. Yeah. And how radio has has changed from uh, where it was when I started. I mean, back in the day, uh, everybody worked six days a week. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no uh, two-day weekend. That didn't come till till later. Mm -hmm. uh, if you worked uh, the afternoon drive shift, uh, which I did in, in Charlottetown, for instance, uh, you either uh, worked Saturday morning or Sunday afternoon. Right. Uh, if you worked the morning show, uh, more than likely you would get uh, a Saturday morning, uh, then maybe or a, a Sunday morning, but they tried to keep you to keep the the the, um, the flow there, you know, from what what shifts you were on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was it was it was six days a week, and when you did a show, it was all records, forty fives, right. and you had to go and pick your music, and you knew the formats. You had to follow if it was uh, starting off with a classic song and then a current, and you know you had these bins that you pick your music from, and you had to make sure that the rotations were right on those, and yeah. you'd be checked on all of this, right. and then of course. Um, in some studios, you were using reel-to-reel -reel tape to play commercials. So you'd have three or four Ampex machines to queue up and play commercials. And your records, which were, were never more than three minutes, mostly under that. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, when you did a six-hour shift, man, you had a workout. You, yeah. I mean, I remember when I did the all-night show at VOCM in uh, 77, I think. Anyway, it was... Um, they used to give us a, a half hour, we'd play a country album, and that was so you could have a break. Right. You know, because it was just it was just mayhem. Well, now, I, and I think about that in relation to, um, so there's musicians playing downtown that are doing three-hour gigs. Yeah. And I mean, I try to do like the, the two-set the two set thing these yeah. days, but I did do my stint in the cover bars where three hours is expected. And that's on top of like a sound check, lugging your gear in yeah. and taking it all down. It ultimately works out to a five or six-hour gig. And I think that people often don't think about the level of energy that has yeah. to be maintained. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they do. They see the guy up there. He's singing a lot. He's singing some high stuff. People go, wow, he's got a lot of energy. He's yeah. playing. But there's a lot of jobs like yours that 
also require. They require, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not a desk job where you're like, I'm just going to go out for another break. It's a job where like a certain level of energy has to be maintained constantly with no, you know, so how, you know. Well, you know, I think uh, we go back to when I went to school, you know, there's a whole bunch of exercises they get you to do. And uh, there are a number of things that you would do to prepare for your show. I remember one of the uh, program directors I had uh, and I worked in a number of formats. I worked in country, I worked in pop, I worked in rock, you know, um, and did some talk radio. Um, I worked for the Shoons, the Shoon family, where Jack Shoon and Irving Zucker, they own C, uh, CFCY and FMQ 93 in Charlottetown. They own a number of stations in uh, the Maritimes. Uh, they own CKCW in Moncton. And uh, I'm not sure if, if it was there or if it was another station, but I remember someone saying, you've got to be upright and tight, upright and tight. And, you know, they wanted you up here, they wanted you to be very bright, positive, and not, not just, you know, when they say bright, they mean positive, right? Mm-hmm, you're, not, mm-hmm. you're not dealing in negative stories. Right. And uh, very tight, the program had to be tight. You know, you had to queue up your uh, turntables, and, and if you didn't have instant start turntables, then you had to take the turntable back a full two turns. And then you had to know exactly when to hit that, so you'd you'd hit that post or the vocal or the music, and uh, initially when you started in a new station, oh, it was it was always just mistake after mistake after mistake, and record is running out, you know, they queued up, you're trying to find something, oh my god, I got I got to say, and you're talking and you're queuing up as you're, yeah. so yeah, you know, it was it was a real a real challenge to uh, to get that done, right, uh, you know, and then uh, you know as as things started to change, um, records went away, yeah. And uh, we moved into the age of CDs, and right. that was that was almost it was just such a game changer. It was it gave you such opportunity. You have two or three um, CD machines, and you can fade and go mm-hmm. from one to Did the other. Did you see it as universally positive? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. I yeah. think it took the, a lot of the because you know you were under a lot of pressure in a studio, uh, and of course you had to deal with your program director afterwards. They'd listen to your air check and ask you what happened there. What ha- and you said, well, the record ran out. Well, why didn't you have a record on the turntable? Right. Well, I was busy on the phone. Well, you know, the first thing you had to do is make sure you're loaded and ready to go for yeah. the next thing. Can't have silence. You know, yeah, you yeah. know, your carts, you missed a commercial there. What happened there? That's revenue, you know? So right. a lot of things like that, that happened. And uh, yeah, see, and, these, and don't forget to be bright and positive. <laughs> and all of that, yeah. And of course, you know, and the information to be accurate. And there were all these elements that had to go into the show. I remember I had one guy and he said, in every hour, I want a PSA, I want a station promotion, I want a cross plug i want a pre-promo i want a weather well there's two or three other things oh an album title um you know some and you had to make sure all of these elements were built into that hour right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then you'd sit down and have an air check which was like oh god this the funniest thing about air checks was uh working at vocm john murphy who was uh uh, program director there when I was there and uh, brought me in. I had been working in Grand Falls, Windsor and he brought me in from CKCM or CK Country as it was known in the day and um, put me on the all night show and my father was thrilled because it was the first time I'd been home and he was going to hear me in St. John's on the all night show. So he would stay up at night and record me. So I'd come in after doing like six hours, well really seven because there was an hour of preparation. So I'd straggle in the door about 6.30 and I'd be, oh, all, in all night, you just want to sleep. Now, you know, you're, you're in your early 20s and you're, you're just exhausted, right? You need a lot of sleep. And he'd say, before you go to bed, you're going to have breakfast. Let me just go through a few things with you. And he'd start rewinding the tape and playing the toxics. And I'd go, oh, God, you know, I'd hate it, right? And then the day would come 
when John Murphy would call me and tell me to drop in, he wanted to go through an ear check with me. And he's going through the ear check with me. And it's the same thing that my father had gone through with me, right? And I say, yeah, I should have done this, I should have that. And he said, well, if you were supposed to do it, why didn't you do it? <laughs> I said, okay, Dan, we had to stop this ear check stuff because uh, I, I can't do both of you. All right? I can't, it's just not going to work, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was, it was pretty funny, right? So, right, right. Yeah. Tell me about, let's go back a second. You were talking about the various people who've given you advice and you would ask for advice. So I'm curious. I mean, I think you've alluded to what some of it is, but like, what would you, you know, you were talking about not liking your voice. Were you actually talking to these people about like I didn't how like the, to project? Yeah, and, I, I didn't like the, uh, I didn't, I, I, I thought I sounded too squeaky. Okay. And, 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 I, and I didn't want to sound squeaky and, uh, you know, just, and a part of it too was pacing, you know, to get the pacing down for what you want to do. Yeah. Uh, little pieces of advice that people give you. Did you feel like you separated your voice, like in the way that some singers kind of go, this is like the onstage version of me and the offstage? Like, did you sometimes, feel like you had an on-air voice? Sometimes people say that to me and, and people who know me say that's not true. I don't think it is. Because people say to me, oh, here he comes with his radio voice and I don't think I'm that guy. Yeah. You know, I, that's just the way I am. I think over time I've learned pacing. Um, my dad used to always say to me, when you think you're going slow, slow down. Right. People would always say to me, but you're not from Newfoundland. And I go, oh, yeah, I'm from Newfoundland. When I came back from Alberta, living in Alberta uh, for as long as I did, when I started working with Sun Color Press and I was going to school, people would tell me, you're speaking too fast. You're speaking too fast. Mm. I, I can't understand what you're saying. So I, I consciously had to slow down. So when I came back to Newfoundland, I was this very pronounced young man who spoke very carefully. So I right. wanted to make sure you understood what I was saying. Mm -hmm. So I show up at my friend's house, and his father's an older gentleman, and I ring the doorbell. And I said, good afternoon, Mr. So-and-so. Is so-and-so at home? <laughs> and he goes, hey, this guy was a Royal Navy veteran, right? He goes, yes, Brian, bye. Step in. So I step in, and he goes upstairs, and he says to his son, Ryan's downstairs. Yeah. There's something wrong with him. <laughs> But it was so not me, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, I guess part of that always stayed with me, you know. Right, you, right. You tend to, to speed up a little bit here and there. Well, I had that, like, and I think of so many people. I mean, Lacey, your daughter, Lacey yeah. O'Connell. Uh, I mean, she taught in Seoul for years. Yep. Uh, I did work with English as a Second Language at Munn. That was my proving ground. Similar kind of story, right? Yeah. I was working with people who obviously English was, was their second language. I was slowing down, to me, like 50%. And that was how, and then, and then that's the thing now that I don't want to say I can turn it on and off because I can lean into a Newfoundland accent, whatever that is. But at the same time, I can definitely have people go, you're not from Newfoundland. Yeah. And it's just because I, it's not me trying to hide the accent. It's the fact that for formative years in university, I was spending hours and hours every day being very careful about pronunciation. Yeah. I found when I came home and you'd, you know, be with a group of your friends and you're out having a few beer, all of a sudden you were back there. Right? Oh, of course. You know, yeah. it, just, just, it just came back to you. you know? yeah. But even then they would say to you, oh, listen to you, you know? Right. You know, sound like a mainlander. Right. right. You know? But and, it's the chameleon thing too yeah. that I think a lot of people have. Like if you go to Ireland, some there's there's a percentage of people who are like, I need to try not to impersonate the accent. Not even mockingly. <laughs> just right. need to just not try to do yeah, it back yeah. to somebody. Yeah. Don't uh, don't go there. Sure, sure face of a girl. How are you? <laughs> Exactly. What? I almost did that to a cab driver there, and I was like, Ian, don't be that yeah. guy. I have a brother 
brother-in-law, when he goes to Quebec, he uh, he try he speaks with a little bit of a, so how are you? You know, that, that, uh, and I go, why do you do that? I don't know. He said, it just happens. Right. <laughs> you know what I started doing that blew my mind when I, when I really thought about it was I would put the M, like the, instead of an um, mm. an M sound, which is very Irish. <laughs> so I, I was trying to think of something, I'd be like, um, um, and then like a cab driver's like, are you from... <laughs> Here? I'm like, no, I'm just mocking uh, you apparently stop, by accident. Stop impersonating us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's curious. And and over, you know, uh, 43 or so years, you know, I've, I've learned a lot and I've seen a lot of change in radio. You know, mm-hmm. I remember when we went from uh, CDs and uh, I, I remember I was working for um, uh, Harry Steele, who is, you know, one of the most exceptional people in the world to work for. Right. Uh, Mr. Steele is one of those guys who uh, hires you and then gets the hell out of your way. Hmm. You know, uh, I didn't hire you so I could do your job. Mm -hmm. I hired you so you could do your job. But I remember these guys came in from Philadelphia, and uh, somehow the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme goes off on my head when I say that. (laughs) Anyway, these guys came in, and they told us they were going to put our our entire music library on um, disc, on, 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 on our hard drive. Yeah. And, and, you know, and we just, we couldn't fathom that. We looked at our library and we go, yeah, there's no way that's going to happen. You're going to put all of that music and then you're going to categorize it. You're going to put blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't, couldn't get that at all. And then, of course, um, they started doing it and all these small companies sprang up around North America and Europe for that matter. And there was, you know, there was Music Master and there was Music This and Music That. And there were so many of them. And uh, I remember the big Y2K scare because all of these programs were designed with no rollover into 2000. And uh, a lot of stations were manned that night and had uh, pulled out all their CDs and everything in the event that the whole system went down and they had to go from scratch again. Well, that right. didn't happen, but, right. uh, but they, it was a big scare, a big media, uh, radio uh, scare. They were, they were radio stations all across the country and people writing columns about it, what you should do. You know, some engineers were saying, well, put turntables back in the control room, blah, blah, blah. You know, really? But anyway, it, 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 it worked out. But I remember when we, we went to, um, to uh, the computer system and then automation and there was a very good side of that in that all of a sudden uh, radio stations could automate and people could have time off. Right. Uh, the downside of that was you needed fewer people because mm. typically in a radio station, take VOCM back in the day, you probably had 13 to 14 announcers in right. one form or another, either full-time or part-time. Right. And then you had a whole other news staff. So it was a, it was a fairly large operation, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, when uh, technology happened, I always say technology happened, when we went to this automation and all these music systems, it changed everything. But it made the job so much easier. And then, of course, you know, when the internet really got going, all of a sudden the world was there and you could find out any piece of information, but so could everybody else. Right. So then you had to be a little different than anybody else. So I, I found a guy in uh, Ontario who used to write for radio. And doing show prep is, uh, you know, one of the things uh, they say is, you know, you, you need to put a, uh, for every, every two-hour show, you need to put an hour of show prep, which is pretty well true. You have things to talk about. And you got to be current, too, you mm-hmm, know. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, there's lots of stuff happening. And back in the day, you, you only had the local newspapers and you had some national news, some broadcast news, wire copy. You know, and everybody else had the same thing. Do you think that those technological changes, like jumping from records to CDs, 
made radio better because people had more time, or do you think mm-hmm. it just uh, like it because because less people got hired, it made well, it more taxing? I, well, I think it, I think it made it better in that the amount of information that you could access and you could share. Yeah, was there. Well, I'm also picturing you describing juggling the things you were juggling yeah. when it comes to turntables, yeah. and and you, just more parts of your brain could be focused yeah. on just dialogue on what you were going to say, right? Yeah. And, and I think as you went on in radio, the guys who were uh, like where I am now, but um, uh, the guys who were older guys who were used to juggling all this, they had all that. This was all route to them. They could just you know do it, and if they had to. Ad lib their way over a hump. They could just do it. Me, on the other hand, I would trip over everything, and you hear records falling over, and coffee cups, and everything. You know, <laughs> leaving your mic switch on and saying the wrong thing. You right. Know, so, yeah. <laughs> you got a few of those. I, I did. I, I myself and Kim Stockwood were doing a show on Q ninety three, a morning show, and this is before Kim went off and became a successful singer. And she was great to work with, but she hated early mornings. Right. And we had just moved in. I was working for. Uh, um, Kicks Country on Kenmount Road um, in the old uh, Art Noseworthy building is where it was. And I remember we had installed all this equipment and, uh, you know, there were issues with the equipment. Anytime you do a new install, you have some bugs you have to work out. But we have one particular problem where the start button wouldn't start when you, you hit the start button. Mm. And, uh, you know, you go through, because back in the day, you'd, you'd, you'd go through these elaborate things. You had sound effects and everything else, and they were all on tape or cartridge, and, you know, you're, you're do, you got about nine things to do to make this thing work and make it so it's like, ha, 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 sort of thing. Mm. And we did all those, blah, 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 and I hit the start button, and nothing happened. And I remember, <laughs> I remember, not my proudest moment, screaming the F word <laughs> right into the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> like right about where this is now, right at the top of. Oh, my it must lungs. have been extremely clear. Yes, it was. Yeah. It was quarter to eight in the morning. Oh, perfect. And uh, that's I re- what I—that's the word I think of when I wake up at quarter to eight in the morning. And I remember Kim jumped up and ran to the back of the studio. It was a large studio, back of the wall, and she had this look of, "Oh my God, oh my God!" And then I got up and I joined her because the the element had started finally. And I thought, "Well, that's it." So I waited till uh, nine o'clock. <laughs> Nobody called. You right. know, I didn't get any, uh, and when I put, then again, I didn't answer the phone, so I put the phones on hold. So, you know, yeah. whatever's going to come is going to go right to the general manager. So he was a friendly guy named Don Abbey. Mm. And um, <clears throat> Don called me in, and uh, I said, yeah, Don, I said, I know. Brian, sit down. I want to have a conversation with you. I said, yes, Don. I said, you know, I understand, you know, I broke a cardinal rule. I'm very sorry. So I understand you have to do what you have to do. Yeah, Brian, now wait, just wait a second, you know. I just want you to know that you can't say that on the radio. I said, yeah, Don, I know. I'm really sorry. So I said, you know, am I, am I suspended? Am I fired? Yeah. Oh, no, no, nothing like that. He said, you can't say that on the radio. Don't do that again, okay? I went, okay. <laughs> I, I love that he told you. Just in case weeks, you didn't know, you can't scream the F word into the microphone. And then yeah. two weeks later, I said, shit. But somehow <laughs> that went by and nobody said, Just, I think it was much earlier in the morning. So. Right. Like not that I have a, a tendency to swear, but we were having some equipment problems. Mike's not turning off and that sort of thing. Right. So, you know, the old saying, never say anything in front of a microphone. You wouldn't say in front of a live microphone. <laughs> so that happens, right? Right, right. So, yeah. So you get a lot of these stories. The, the thing I think most that's changed about radio um, is... Uh, you know, we, we become more Americanized in, in our sound. 
I think radio wins locally because of local content. People mm -hmm. have preached the demise of radio for years, and it, it hangs on. It hangs on in small markets. AM radio was supposed to be dead and gone years ago, and uh, everybody's preaching the same thing. But in, in markets, uh, medium markets, smaller markets, and even some large markets, it continues to hang on, and mm -hmm. it continues to have a following. And that, I think, is part of uh, the aging demo. You know, when you get to a certain age, you start looking for other content. You no longer are interested in the top 20 songs. You, mm -hmm. you, you like some of them, but you're not going seeking them out. You're more interested in conversation or topics or things that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. So local content. The thing I think I miss most about radio was um, I worked at VOCM for many years, and uh, John Murphy was a, a great programmer in that John had the big picture idea. We were... We were bigger than anybody. I mean, we put a number one on the front lawn. I mean, how? what kind of gall do you have to put that on the front lawn and say, and even if you're not, we are, so there. You know, there were stations like that in Ontario, the Big Eight in Windsor. They, had, they just had this persona. And uh, we used to do the wildest contests, you know. Mm -hmm. And you still see leftovers of that today with uh, stations like K-Rock, which is, you know, influenced by that. The, the pumpkin drop, the big uh, $10,000 pumpkin drop that they do. Uh, we used to do something called the Great Flotation Race, which you could never do today. Mm -hmm. But we would encourage uh, people to build a craft that you could sail across Kitty Bitty Lake. And we'd set up a sound system that was always in uh, late October, early November, which wasn't the warmest time of year to be yeah. down at the lake. Yeah. And people would build all manner. We, we'd have 15 or 20 entries. We'd have engineering students from Munn. We'd have people from uh, College of the North Atlantic. Uh, you know, we had a lot of local families that would, all kinds of craft. Wow. And they'd all be based on themes back in the day. When was this? This was this was back in the, um, let me guess now, I'll get it right, 85, 86. Okay. And, and previous to that, you yeah. know. Um, the Great Flotation Race was an idea that uh, I think John Murphy had seen somewhere and thought this could work. Right. And people would show up and do this. And of course, yeah, can you have... imagine that in today's age? No, of social media, we, we people didn't would have be a, so mad. We didn't have a fast <laughs> rescue craft. You know, we made sure people had life jackets on. We had sound system. We had radio. We had, ve we had so many vehicles down there. It was just great. It was a big event. And then I think the prize was $1,000. Right. So you had to risk your life going across the. And, and, and probably spend 1500 building your thing. So, so they do this. And, and uh, it was a, it was just a great radio thing. It was one of those great promotions. We talked about it uh, years later. We said, you know, you could never do that now with the liability and and all of the safety issues that go along with that. But back in the day, boy, it was fair game to do, you know. Yeah, and yeah. It was went over well. But we we had a lot of those types of promotions that we did, you know. Right. Um, things like the 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 Happy Tree Show. Um, a guy named John Reynolds came up with the idea for coats for kids. Right. And he read about it somewhere. They were doing it somewhere in a place in the states and he brought it to uh, vocm and they said that's a great idea it lives on today yeah so yeah i think um you know radio of old for me i you know i have a lot of fond memories of it you know of course of, a lot of characters too a lot of great characters yeah yeah that's cool that's cool so connect the dot for me here um because we kind of jumped ahead a little so you started out in edmonton and yep. then when was it that the move back uh, I, I got an opportunity to go to, I wanted to come back home. Why? At the time I thought, why am I doing this? Because, you know, Edmonton and, and that whole area was just on the verge. But I, I was kind of homesick, like no, most Newfoundlanders, you, you wanted to come home. Mm -hmm. My sister had moved on, so I was kind of alone out there. And I came home to, uh, John Murphy hired me for CKCM, and I was there about a month. I was working with a guy named Mike Roberts, who was station manager, and uh, he called me one day and said, they want you in St. John's. 
you're going in for the summer to do the all-night show. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, okay, great. So I go in, I do the all-night show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm at VOCM for a period of time, and then uh, Dave Monder calls me, and I wind up at Q Radio working for the Jameson family. Okay. And uh, one of my favorite people in the world, Baz Jameson. Yeah. Just a, a wonderful, wonderful man. Bass, yeah. uh, yeah. A great guy. Just a guy who... Um, who couldn't do enough for anybody. He was just that kind of guy. Okay. And I work with some people down there, um, radio legends, Ron Pumphrey, you know, who uh, you just never knew what Ron was going to do on any given night. <laughs> One of those showman-type people, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, then from there, I, I wound up uh, being sent by them to manage uh, Grand Falls, Windsor, Q Radio in Grand Falls, Windsor. And I stayed there about a year, and I saw an opportunity to go to Prince Edward Island. And mm. I always liked PEI. I had some family up there. So I got a job at uh, CFCY, and I was doing afternoon drive in the Voice of the Maritimes. And so was, this was a truly like national scope for you. I didn't realize you'd moved around this. Yeah, much yeah. Here. Apparently, yeah. I couldn't keep a job. <laughs> so now, how like all this is within how big a period of time? Oh, this is in seven, eight, nine years. You know, right. okay. uh, I wound up uh, doing a because we we had stations in Moncton. I did a little bit of work for them, and then I came back to VOCM again, and I was there for a period. And then Harry Steele came calling. Hmm. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Joe Butler. Joe Butler was the uh, guy who, uh, he had the big picture vision of VOCM. I mean, VOCM named Valleys after itself. It was, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Butler uh, was a guy not to be toyed with Hmm. when it came to competition. Because uh, if if there was going to be a winner, it was going to be him. Right. And uh, it didn't matter what the cost or um, anything else. You know, he was going to be number one, and that was it. Mm. And he didn't care what you thought. He used to say to me all the time, all you have to do is get one point in ratings, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'd say, one point, sir? He said, because if you get one, you'll get another. And then if you get two, you might get two more. Then you've got four. And, and he was absolutely right, you know, in a lot of that because he just made you think, you know, I can do better, I can do better. And they always pushed you to do that, you know. Right. But I wound up working for, uh, for the Steele family. I worked at uh, Kicks and Q. And then I was out. I went to work uh, doing some telethon work for the uh, Bliss Murphy uh, okay. Foundation. Right. And then I wound up back at VOCM. Uh, Dick Reeves left the morning show and uh, John Murphy called me and asked me to come back and do mornings. Right. And then I did. And then I was there for a period of time and then I... <laughs> Wound up going to Oz FM, and I was there for a while, and then um, I wound up back at VOCM. What a windy road! Yeah, you know it has been. Uh, you know it, it's it's been great. I, you know the thing is, I've worked for all the broadcast families in in, in the province. I worked for the Jamesons, the Butler family, uh, the Steele family, the Sterling family. You know, yeah. and uh, while they're all similar, they all have a very different approach to how the property should be run and what the sound of the station. How so? How does that work? Well, you know, uh, I think, uh, um, you know, Joe Butler was a, a man who listened all the time. He listened all the time, and he, he had an opinion on that. Um, the Jamesons uh, listened, uh, but their focus was, was more on the sales side of it, you know? They, they left the programming to the programmers. Um, I think the Sterlings were very much involved in, in the programming side of it a lot, Right. You know, they had a, a lot of opinions on how it should be run. And I think that was influenced because, uh, you know, they live in the States and, and they like to bring these ideas back, sure. which is not a bad thing. Sure. Um, and who was the other one I said? Um, um, and, and the Steels. Steels were get out of the way, let you do your business. And, uh, you know, they would bring in any assistance you need. Right. You know, they would, they would, uh, if you needed a, a consultant to give you a hand, they did that. You know? Cool. But they weren't going to tell you 
what your talk sets should include or shouldn't include. Okay. Uh, you know, yep. uh, VOCM, they would tell you, you know, we only should talk about this, one should talk about that, right? So, right. So, a difference, uh, difference in companies. Uh, in, in Charlottetown, the Shoons, um, we had a program director, he ran the show. Right. And um, they didn't get involved, the, the revenue. But back in the day, uh, that was a huge moneymaker. You know, mm. CFCY was just an incredible amount of money, you know. Uh, you couldn't, you had to book time to get on the station, right? Right. You had to book time in October for Christmas, right? If you wanted to get your ads on, right? Right. And that was, there was no internet back in the day. There was none of that, you know. So what do you got, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it's been an interesting, uh, interesting change and in, uh, see the dynamic. And now, of course, social media has changed everything again, you know. Of course. You know, and now, course. now, you know, you're expected to have a presence there as well. Yeah. How yeah. much does that change the way that you... Uh, I guess considered yourself. As well, a radio I, I think now you know you, you you're more open to. Before, if people wanted to get in touch with you, they had to phone the radio station, right? And they would they'd disagree with you. They'd phone you up and tell you. Right. Very few people did that. Right. Some people would write a letter. You know, now they'll roast you. You know, on, mm-hmm. on Twitter or or wherever. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, if they don't like something you posted, they'll they'll come after you. Not only here, but you know, worldwide. You can of course. you can post something and uh, you know you make a mistake or uh, whatever, and you know you can get just trounced for it. Right. Yeah, I All remember right. having this conversation with somebody about. Um, the advent of blogs in the mid 2000s yeah. when everyone had a blog that yeah. was the thing big deal right? yeah. and, and I always how, found them to be time consuming it was I always thought, yeah. who's reading this well you know? exactly and I'm sure in most cases no one was yeah. the answer you know uh, but I remember thinking like it seemed like, let's say, 20, 2007 and 2017, the same sentence was said just with a different tone. In 2007, it was like, isn't the internet great? Everybody's yeah. got a voice. Yeah. And now in 2017, people are like, isn't the internet great? Everybody's, Everybody's got, got a voice. voice. You yeah. know? You know? And, and yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, but, you know, the old line in the Desiderata, the dull and the ignorant, they too have their story. So, you know, sure. everybody deserves to be heard. Sure. And, uh, you know, when you work in media, you know, part of your job is to is to do that, you know, and yeah. listen to these people. And I think uh, where we were back in the uh, 60s and 70s with the guy sitting in the control room going frantic about records and everything. Now, when you're on the air, the automation is taking care of that. You've got everything loaded in. And now you're watching the social media feed mm. to see what you have to respond That's to. That's the new turntable spinning. That's that you've the, got yeah. You, and, you know, you, and sometimes you have to respond right away. You know, if you're doing an afternoon drive show and there's an accident, then you want to get it on your social media platform as quickly as possible. And you want to get it on air as quickly as possible. Right. And you want to make sure that you're not stealing information from somebody else. Mm. So you had to be so careful about all of that. You know, then you, you go back to your newsroom and you're saying, can you validate this? Can you give me some information on that, you know? Uh, so yeah, while it's changed, it's kind of like similar. <laughs> I worry about the hot take though, right? Because I think that like, I mean, journalism has always been about Oh, we're wrong to get more than we're right now. Yeah, just because there's no time yeah. to well, actually... There's, there's also nobody checking. Uh, you right. know, in the old days of a newspaper editor or a newsroom editor, somebody would check your facts for you. Now, mm. sometimes you get, uh, you know, people who will just fly right into it and then realize afterwards, oh God, that's wrong. Mm. You know, and now you've got a problem, you know. Right, fake news. So, and the other Just thing, kidding. yeah, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. Um, and the other thing is, you know, uh, 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 people commenting, you know. People now feel the need to to comment, and, and they should be allowed to comment, but the sense of decency has gone from that. Right. People now feel the need to unload both barrels and say the worst things. Right. You know, there was some decorum. Uh, now there's not. Yeah, again, I wonder if that's a result of the sort of the the access, you know? Like you're saying, if someone has to call the station 
to get mad at you. Yeah. You know, uh, in the old days, I guess the romantic view of radio is that it just, it goes out and you can tell by some statistic that there are listeners. So, yeah. you know, that's people are hearing you yeah. and you're probably getting like a very small percentage of like direct contact of like the phone's ringing off the hook, but you know that that information is getting out there. It's getting into people's heads and it's not just someone gets mad and the comment is suddenly in your face one second later and yeah. It, I think decorum people, breaks down, right? People pile on, and uh, sometimes they don't have the facts correct. Sometimes they just jump on it, and and there are people out there who are, you know, just out there to stir the pot. Right? They um, they don't care. They're just trying to get a reaction, and they're trying to get, uh, you know, whatever reaction they can get. You know, they want to shock people. Right? They think in some capacity they're Howard Stern, and everybody cares about what they say. And every so often they'll get a small following and that feeds them. You know? Exactly. They, exactly. Uh, they go from there. But Well, and, and Tara Bradbury was here uh, from the telegram and she was saying that, you know, there's the element of the comments section that used to exist there and how they can see the back end and they can see that like yeah. the same IP address, yeah. two yeah. different comments, yeah. two different yeah. usernames. Like you get that trolling. We had the same thing. We yeah. had the exact same thing. Uh, my daughter Lacey used to say one of the worst jobs she had was editing the comments. Uh, I remember that period of time. Well. It was, because people are vicious. And, and you know, uh, I don't know. I guess they, they feel that because it's, you know, they're typing it. And nobody knows. They have that anonymity. Nobody knows who you are. Well, I got some news for you. We know your IP address, you know. Not that we, you know, we're going to do anything with that, but... You know, it's a real waste of our manpower to sit down and, and sort through a bunch of inane comments from people who uh, are just there to be vicious or, or trying to hurt people. Exactly. If people want to have a serious conversation, and I mean a serious discussion, that's fine. But name calling and that sort of thing, that, that doesn't belong. You can have a debate with someone and not insult them. Exactly. And I, I think that's part of the problem that we're faced with that now, you know, people feel the need not only to disagree with you, but to tell you you're a putz or, or you know, that you're some sort of an ass and they don't like your shoes and you're fat and, you know. And, yeah. You know. And I worry that that it's just because we spend so much time online that there is a little, the edges of that are starting to bleed out into the real world, yeah. right? We're yeah. starting to just Well, like, you know, yeah. all of that whole fake news thing and all that that goes on. You know, there's a segment of society now that believes that, I know, it's crazy. you know. Yeah. And, you know, when you take a, a publication like the New York Times or the Washington Post or locally, the uh, the Telegram, I mean, you know, you have editors, uh, VOCM News. We have an editor. We have people who are responsible about that. Do we get it right all the time? No, sometimes we don't. But, you know, when we get it wrong, we're very quick to tell you we got it wrong and we correct it, mm -hmm. you know. And I think, uh, I think that uh, part of the problem we have now with this new age is that there's nobody fact-checking, you right. know? And all of these uh, fake news sites that are fake news, mm -hmm. you know, that, that represent one interest group or another interest group, you know, whether they be uh, to the right or to the left or somewhere in the center, you know, it just, it just throws more into the fire, right? Yeah. And then it's hard for people, just your average person, I mean, you look at your Facebook feed and people will retweet or repeat stories and you go, the, the dead celebrity is my favorite, you know? Right. Poor old Clint Eastwood was dead a few weeks ago. I know. <laughs> How many times have some of them been dead now? Betty White's after dying nine times. I know. You know? And I people know. people don't even check. And the other thing is uh, people will send you these messages. Don't accept messages from so-and-so because, and you go to Snopes and you look, this, read this for God's sakes. You I know. know. Just this look is, it this up. Is, yeah. This is fraudulent. It's yeah. not true. Before you post that stuff, please check it, you know? Be your own editor. You know? It's funny, though. You just wonder if it's uh, – we're still just doing the same things. I mean, those are the same people who used to mail chain letters. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
You're absolutely <laughs> right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. They just have a different. But now they have more access to yeah. you. Maybe they just didn't have your address before. Now they're like, now we can just now write right on Facebook. Now we got you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it is. But, you know, on the other side of that, it has opened up an opportunity for you to be uh, more in touch with your audience. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I had a, a listener in Australia and uh, she was from Newfoundland and, um, uh, they used to listen when I did the Irish Newfoundland show every Saturday morning in Australia, and they'd always send me a text, and I'd always play their song. Mm-hmm. And uh, she passed recently. Mm. And, you know, um, I didn't know her personally. I only knew her through the conversations we had had, and I, I sent her husband a note telling him how sorry I was because I remember how engaged she was mm-hmm. as a listener. Mm. And I got to know her on her Facebook page. I saw her and her kids and everything. And that, you know, that that put me in touch in a different way with people. Yeah. Right? You weren't so quick to, and when you talk to someone on the phone, you know, you, I always try and take the time to, you know, now that you have more time to get to know that person. If you're a listener, you know, if someone stops me in a store and tells me they listen, I always thank them. Uh, that's an old Loma Macaulay thing. He said, you know, if anybody tells you they listen, you should really say thank you because that's a compliment that they do take time to listen to you Absolutely. and whatever you're saying. Absolutely. So yeah, I th- more so than ever yeah. as the time goes on. Yeah. Cause yeah. how noisy is our world now? Yeah. Imagine the idea anecdotally of someone listening to you over the like 9,000 channels on Sirius exactly. radio or exactly. any other thing. Yeah. Like yeah. I think about that with music all the time. Yeah. If someone comes to a show, I'm like how many other shows were happening literally right now? And they came they to see go you. To? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. an important element. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So, yeah, I mean, for all of the the, the dire consequences of new technology, th- there's also a, a lot of uh, bright spots in there, you know. And uh, I think it, uh, you know, I, I, th- I think it's, it's changed the media world uh, significantly and it's opened us up to more contact with our, um, with our listeners, you know. And that's the end of part one of my conversation with Brian. Tune in next week where you'll hear part two. We'll pick up where we left off. Please like and subscribe to this podcast on all the appropriate podcast platforms. Try saying that three times fast. Okay, see you next week. Bye.